Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, Job Shop Show listeners. Today's show is one I've been looking forward to. We are chatting with Tom Persh, who was the COO or Chief Operating Officer at Rapid. At Strategic Coach, Dan Sullivan has a saying, there are three types of people in the world. Those who make it up, those who make it real, and those who make it recur. I am definitely a make it up person, and Tom is a make it real person. Without Tom making my ideas real at Rapid, Rapid would not have reached the levels of growth and success that we did. Tom made it happen. So today, we will be talking with Tom, have an operations focus, and discuss some of the things that were important in our journey at Rapid, where he was able to enable the operations to reach their potential. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Tom. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. appreciate the invitation. So you have a set of rules to live by. What are they? Well, when I retired or semi-retired, I kind of looked back on a 45-year manufacturing career and said, what are the kind of the guideposts that, that I used to to kind of guide me along. And uh, I came up with seven of them. One was uh, always volunteer. Um, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you step out of your comfort zone. Yeah. The second one was uh, you rarely get what you don't ask for. So don't be afraid to ask. The third one was don't lose your temper. Once anger takes over all the logic and uh, goes right out the window and you re- usually you end up regretting what you say and it ends up in a lose-lose situation. Fourth item is if it isn't helping the top line or improving the bottom line, you're probably working on the wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. The fifth one is it's okay to fail. Uh, don't fear failure. Uh, and the bonus rule to that was if you're a manager, put guardrails on your employees so that they uh, don't hurt themselves or hurt others, but give them the, the freedom to to learn and fail on their own and make sure they fail fast. The sixth item was, uh, and it's one of our core values at Rapid, which is enjoy the journey. You're going to spend half of your waking life at work. Mm -hmm. You better enjoy what you're doing. And if you don't go do something else, life's much too short to to spend doing, doing something that you're not enjoying. Absolutely. And last one was, uh, one I had, I stole from, uh, a sports analogy that I was listening to one day where he was talking about marriage and his comment was you, when you get married, you have to make a choice. You can be happy or you can be right. <laughs> Unfortunately, I chose to be happy. So those are the seven, seven rules to live by. That's great. That's great. And you came up with those that you probably were living them along the journey, but you put them down after. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I, I was, I had a nice retirement party as I left rapid uh, and I thought it would be good if I left some wisdom behind. Mm-hmm. So I, I went through the whole list of things that I could think of. And those were the kind of the seven that came out on top of if I had to impart wisdom into something or somebody that those would be the things that I would want them to walk away with. Great. So, well, thanks for sharing those. I remember those at the party and yeah. There's some good stories behind each of them as well. (laughs) That would take up probably another podcast. We could do a whole podcast on a couple people in there. (laughs) You started out in big companies and in public companies. So, and you ended up in small company, private company, and even right now you're in a smaller company 
and still private company. Can you talk about the differences between the two and how the two operate differently? Yeah, I think uh, joining a big company right out of college was probably a good thing for me. Uh, it helped me build a real good base of knowledge and information. But I think I probably got stuck waiting too long to, to make a move. And, and not even knowing it when you're in it. Uh, it's kind of you look back and you say, in a public company, you're, you're building material and you have objectives and goals. But in reality, you're selling stock. You're trying to keep, right. do the things that keeps the stock price going in the right direction, even if those things don't necessarily make sense for the business in either the short or long term at times. So uh, when I look back now, I think about you know, how I spent my time. And it seemed so important at the time I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think a, a lot of it evolved out of you do reports because in a large company, you have to provide information up the chain. And so you get into a mode of uh, doing, doing reports that are weekly, monthly, quarterly. There's a lot of prep time that goes into that. Mm -hmm. uh, you're trying to answer any issues or problems that, that come up. And if you're not careful, you can actually end up, the reporting becomes your, your job, job. Yeah. as opposed to managing the business and trying to figure out the direction you want the business to go. Well, I thought it was interesting. You said the business was often selling stock and keeping the stock price up, keeping the shareholders happy. So, yeah. I actually had a boss who one time told me, uh, the world ends at the end of this quarter. Make, <laughs> make your numbers. Really? <laughs> so it's very clear that, that they're doing it's a, their job as a CEO is to increase the value of the, of the company. Do you recall any specific things where you had to make a decision to support the selling of stock versus what you felt was a better long-term objective or solution? Yeah, I think a lot of times you would do things that were at the end of the quarter where you would, you know, essentially you would kind of stop doing things the way you normally did them and you focused everybody's effort and energy and time into getting to your, you know, the number that you committed to mm -hmm. uh, at the end of a quarter. And, and I think you do things that send a strange message both to your employees as well as you're doing things that in the end are not necessarily helping the business and you kind of get stuck in that mode. And once you've done it a couple of times, that, that then also becomes a pattern that you have an end of the, into the quarter. And I noticed when one of the things I enjoyed about, about rapid, it just kept going. It wasn't like right. we had an end of the month or an end of a week or end of a quarter. It just, you had a job to do. You had parts to get to the, the customer on time. And that became the reason that you were. We, we didn't want to ship stuff wrong because we knew it was coming back. And those numbers may have looked good to hit a revenue goal, but if it, cost us money by parts coming back. That was not what we wanted. And yeah. then bottom line is we, we wanted to keep the customers happy. So you're keeping other people happy when you're shipping potentially bad parts or parts that are on the margin and you're not keeping the customer foremost in mind. And I, I think that was something we always did really well at rapid is we wanted to make sure the customers were getting the attention. Very much so. It was always the customer first. Yep. yep. I don't know if you remember, I would <clears throat> often say that we have, we may have to do something that is not the most efficient in operations or doesn't make the company move in the uh, most efficient manner. But if it's, if it's right for the customers and we have to adapt the operations and bite that bullet for the customer. Yeah. I think that was a great, great advice and great, great inspiration on how to, how to satisfy the customer. Cause yeah. you're doing it over the long haul. We'll yeah. Make it a short term decision that impacts the customer and your business levels. Yeah. So I remember one thing that you said about working at rapid specifically in regarding the, using QuickBooks as our accounting package and the reports that you were able to get because you had, 
and just so the audience understands, you worked for Teradyne and you managed over your career at the end two large groups or what would you call divisions of business units. Yep. Business units. And they each had, I think, at least a couple thousand employees. Yeah, it was a, it was a big role. Uh, and we use a, an integrated Oracle ERP system, which mm-hmm. was which was wonderful in some ways, but if uh, it took multiple people to support it, and mm-hmm. if I needed some piece of information out of it, I would end up having to typically submit a request for, for the information and often to get behind other people. And by the time you got the information back you're looking for, the information was not helpful in making a decision. And when I started with Rapid, I quickly found out there was no support people. So if, I had a question, <laughs> if I had a question, I had to go figure it out on my own. Yeah. So it forced me to get into the, you know, the, the things like our uh, QuickBooks as well as the ERP system that we were running, Job Boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just learned how to navigate my, my way around it. It was very intuitive, very easy. I didn't need a support team to, to help me figure it out. Um, and if I ever had a question, I could always go to Paula mm-hmm. and get direction because uh, she was the power user. But uh, it just forced me into learning how to use the systems to get information out on my own. But you had the information immediately. You uh, could make actionable decisions based upon information rather than guessing at a larger company, perhaps, and then hoping the information you got validated your decision. Yeah, because often, even in the larger company, when you got the information, a lot of times you looked at it and you that's you know, that created another question and you go try to figure out that question uh, and it became kind of a, right. A circular thing in QuickBooks It's because it's so intuitive. You just keep drilling down, drilling down until you get at the information you need. And so, it can give you, give you the, uh, and the things that you needed to make decisions for that day. So what was the catalyst to have you go from a large company to a small company? Um, actually it's that, it's that failure. Don't fear. Don't be afraid to fail. I was mm-hmm. with a. I had left Teradyne when it got acquired by Amphenol, um, and they always tell people Amphenol is a great business, they're a great company to own stock in, but not necessarily uh, the best company to work in. Mm. And so I ended up leaving there, went to a, uh, another public company that uh, the CEO and I didn't necessarily see eye to eye on on things. So. Uh, in the end, my daughter in New Hampshire uh, became pregnant with her first grandchild, and it was not how I wasn't having a lot of fun. It was the one of my rules to live by, so mm. I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. So we essentially we left and moved back to New Hampshire, and without a job, started looking for a job, mm-hmm. and was fortunate enough to have lunch with one of my former colleagues at Teradyne, who was working for. Um, Known by the name Steve Edelson, who was on your board at the time. Yes, and had my lunch. former boss. Yeah, yep, had lunch with the two of them, and he told me about you. And the rest of history, I came over and we went through a couple of interviews, and could have been couldn't have made a better decision, best decision of my life. And when you look back on it after that, you kind of say, "Wow, I wish I wish I had gone to a smaller company years sure. before that," because it's just so much so much fun. I just want to interject. I think there's a couple key things there. Is Network is incredibly important and you want to stay in touch with people over your, who you've worked with over your career, who you've met with over your career, because you never know what circumstances are going to happen, what's going to change. And the network you have enables you to navigate the change much more easily than if you are trying to apply for jobs through want ads or other types of things. And I, but I think the other part that's a corollary to that is don't burn any bridges, right? <laughs> that's <It's>, for sure. Because <laughs> you never know whether people, where those people are going to end up down the road. Right. And I, and I always think them. of the, one of the things people ask me when I started a company and, or even before that, when I was in small businesses, isn't that risky? There's a small company or, and I said, well, think about it. You could be getting a reviews throughout your career at a public company 
And I, this is a specific example of a contract manufacturer that was up in Westbrook, Maine. And they were doing a fantastic job. And they got a new divisional VP who, and they, they had, I think, tens of divisions throughout the world. New divisional VP who didn't want to travel to Westbrook, Maine, and he shut the whole company down. And those are the types of decisions that you have no influence over whatsoever, no matter how good you're doing your job. So there's risk, there's risk everywhere. And the network, the people who you spend half your life with, those are the people who you're going to need to rely on to help you navigate the change. Absolutely. And it works both ways. Yes. So, yes. The, so you joined Rapid. Actually, before we get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. And so after Rapid was sold to Proto Labs in 2017, you stayed on for a bit and then you worked with the management at Proto Labs to acquire a division that didn't fit into the 3D centric uh, approach of proto labs and that was our wire cable division so maybe you could talk about the 2d versus 3d and wire cable and and how all that came about yeah it's uh it's an interesting transition um when i joined rapid we had sheet metal, sheet metal in the machining business mm-hmm. and i remember probably two years into the you know to the job that uh we you actually were uh, approached by a customer that said, geez, we're building your sheet mill and you're building our machine parts. Why don't you go ahead and build the cables and harnesses that go into it? Cause that's mm-hmm. not our strength right. as well. And we hired an individual, started the business up from scratch. And uh, I think we found out over time that the wire cable business is a much different business. Uh, one of the things that we had hoped to do was to build prototypes for the, yes, and make it similar to our, our core businesses. And what we found out was typically the wire cable is the last thing that the engineer thinks of. Mm-hmm. And by the time you go through all the expense of helping to do the documentation, identifying the parts, getting it to the point where you could actually give a package to somebody to build a wire cable, they often just did it themselves because it was much more efficient from a time standpoint and a cost standpoint. So we kind of shifted uh, the focus of that business more into Pre, pre-production uh, sizes of lots as well as the production piece of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it never really got a lot of attention in the business because it was, at the time, it was a startup piece of it. Mm-hmm. And most of us were spending our energy on growing the sheet metal and the machine parts, which is really where sure. the business growth was going to come from. And I think once uh, Protolabs acquired the company, uh, they quickly saw that as well. And their comment was, if we can't uh, auto quote it or scale it without labor, it's not a business we're interested in investing in. Mm-hmm. And for sure, both of those uh, didn't fit into the uh, to what what our PGC wire cable business or wire cable business at the time was. And what we really found out was that even though there's tools out there to do to provide 3D data, almost nobody does it. Nobody documents in 3D. Oh, and so and yeah. even today, about 90, at least 99% of what we get from our customer is either a PDF of the part and a bill of material. Mm-hmm. Some, sometimes it's the actual part that the engineer had built the first one of, and sometimes it was even a sketch on a napkin. Yeah, I, I remember literally it could be something hand-drawn with pen. Yeah. And we were so used to the everything being modeled in 3D and CAD and to get that documentation to make parts. It, it, it was a, a shift and really yeah. different than what the core of the business was based on. And as ProLabs got in and acquired uh, rapid business, um, even though the fundamentals of the business were the same, mm-hmm. it was different because uh, at the time between Lynn, you and myself, we were making most of the decisions on the direction of the, of the business and suddenly I'm thrust back into that public company 
mm-hmm. again, and a lot of the fun got sucked out of out of the business. Right. And so uh, they approached me and asked me if I was interested in purchasing the wire and cable portion of the business, uh, which we did. Unhooked all the systems, started it up down the road in a different facility, mm-hmm. uh, and got it up and running. It's a you know, it's a it's an even smaller business. It's smaller than when I joined. I joined Rapid. I think we were running around a five to six million dollar revenue rate, and Correct. this business was less than two, and it really only had about twelve people. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the fun part of that was getting the business set up and being now back into there's again, two or three of us that are making the decisions mm-hmm. and we work on stuff that's important to the business. Mm-hmm. And we watch our cash very closely. We watch the top line growth. We look at our investments very closely and we look, look to see how our, our bottom line is doing. And if it's not working, you just change it. Right. And so your discussion of, you know, I've never started up my own business, but now I have my own business through this acquisition. And it's just such a different feeling about when you get up every morning, where you want to go and what you want to do and things you want to accomplish mm-hmm. has a purpose and it's fun. Right. So yep. I always envied people who started up their own business because same, same as you, I mean, and you had it, but you know, you're at a point where in your life, so many times where you have children, you have obligations, mm-hmm. stepping out of that comfort zone all by yourself um, and risking everything. Is that, that's a, that's not an easy decision. It's well, we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, in a little bit. The Colby is a tool to help you understand how you left to your natural inclinations will approach things. But Tom and I have a different characteristic for risk. So for me, when you say that I didn't perceive it as risky, but I know that, to a lot of people, it does look risky starting your own business, but that'll be fun to talk about in a little bit. Let's uh, let's jump over to some of the things at Rapid, and well, maybe let, maybe we start out with with the Colby. So we used a per, I'll call it a personality tool, and I've done a lot of the tests over the years: the Myers Briggs, Strength Finders, some of the other ones. And what I found of all the tools that we used, the Colby was the most actionable and that's K-O-L-B-E. And maybe you can take it from here, Tom, and talk about the Colby and some of the things, what it is and how we used it there. Yeah, I remember as we got into this, uh, you know, being, being skeptical of could this, could this uh, really result in uh, all the things that we heard it could do? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, you, you sent four of us up to uh, some strategic coaching mm-hmm. exercise and, and they went through, uh, that's just a quick story. They went through, uh, we had our Colby's as we went into the room and there's four, four major components. You're, they tell you about fact finding, your follow through, your quick start and your implementer. Mm-hmm. And when we got into the class, uh, the instructor took a person that had high, uh, a high score in one of those, which meant that was their net strong natural tendency. And when we got into it, she gave them a small exercise to do in the class, asked them to step out, then told the class exactly what they were going to do when they got back. And it was just amazing to watch because they, they really, they essentially did everything she said they would do. And she was basing that on that, that score that they right. had, had a very high result on. And so as we got into it, uh, one of the problems we, I think we were having at Rapid was just getting, getting everybody to work together as a team. Mm-hmm. And what the Colby helped us do is, uh, is really understand your, kind of where your natural tendencies are. And I have a great, a great example that I told many people about with Jay and I's relationship. Um, I think we got along very well together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we always thought we were communicating and knew what, what we tried to communicate. Oh, yeah. What we, we were going to do. We made an, we definitely were making efforts. Yeah. And I, and as I went through the Colby uh, process and then looked back on it, um, I, w- I told people, I, I always thought that Jay was a bit 
like a loon, not the crazy <laughs> type of thing. It's uh, more of the bird. And I have, I do a lot of kayaking on lakes. <clears throat> and one of the things I, I notice is that you'll have a loon. It'll be right in front of you. You know exactly where it's at. It'll disappear into water and you have no idea where it's going to come up. Mm-hmm. And I always felt a lot of times working you with you was the same thing. I thought when we sat together and talked, I knew exactly what you, what you <laughs> met, exactly what you wanted me to go do. And then the next time we met, you were off in a different, on a different idea or a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we looked at our Colby's, and again, it's fact finder, follow through, quick start implementer, the higher the score, the higher the tendency. I was an eight, eight, seven, one, four, and Jay was a six, two, nine, three. And so I was a one on quick start. Jay was a nine. You couldn't get farther apart in and terms of quick start. Another way of looking at it is propensity for risk taking or exactly. Yeah. And my follow through was a seven. Jay's was a two. So again, Jay mentioned earlier on, it was, he's, he was the guy who made it up and the Colby scores really reflected. You made right. it up. I hope make it real. Um, and I think once we understood that and looked at those scores together, and then our C, CFO, by the way, was a 7373. Seven, three. So he was closer to where Jay was, a very, very high quick start. Mm-hmm. So I'd get into meetings with the two of them, and my head would be spinning by the time we got, got out of the meeting. And I really I was never quite sure exactly where we were going to go until, until we uh, got the Colby and understood what the differences were and then could deal with those differences, talk about them. Mm-hmm. And really enabled each other to, you know, I guess gave permission to each other to, to challenge and think about how you're reacting to that based on the Colby that we, we had. I'll add on a little bit. The wh- one of the things that I think is valuable about the tool is beyond giving it you a presentation of how you score. And by the way, there's no right or wrong scores. Just this is what it is and you're rated from one to 10 in each of those four categories. But they also have a tool that tells you, well, in this instance, I'll say, Jay, this is how you need to work with Tom based upon his Colby. And then they would do the flip and say, Tom, here's a report in telling you how best to work with Jay. And it was very specific. There are things to do. And there's things not to do. Yeah. One of the things with me with a low follow through is you have to give me a deadline. Otherwise I don't get it done. And I still might not get it done, but a deadline is, is helpful there. So I've got a couple stories. I, we had a great facilitator at strategic coach and she shared with me since Len and I were so similar in Colby's that we would sit together and we would come up with these great ideas and we'd get all energized and excited and high five each other on the way out of the room. And then a week later, nothing would get done. And that's when you have two low follow through people, but with the high quick start, that's just how we will operate. And what was fantastic. And I wish we had brought this tool, known about this tool a lot earlier in rapid, But once we knew how each of us operated, Tom and Len and I would sit down in Tom's office and he had a big whiteboard there and we would come up with this idea. And then instead of Tom just sitting there trying to absorb what we were talking about, we had given him permission to go over to the whiteboard. He would start writing down things And he would ask us a lot of questions because he needed a lot of data, which essentially data is another way of saying the fact finder. Tom needed a lot of data to understand the idea. And it was great because a lot of times he would ask questions that Len and I hadn't thought about. And it might become obvious as he was writing all the stuff down that this was a really bad idea. (laughs) We were able to put the kibosh on it right then. But at the end, often there would be a whiteboard full of notes. And the other part of what we learned how to work with somebody with a lower quick start was we had to let you make the decision, or excuse me, 
give you the, the ability for the timing on the decision making. If we told you we needed a decision tomorrow, that is not, that would have created a lot of anxiety. So Tom being very successful, new operations, we had the confidence that even if it took a week for him to get back, it wasn't something he was ignoring. He was still processing the data. And then, but you might get back to us the same day, might be a couple days, but you would come back and you might say, yes, let's go ahead and do this. And this is what I propose, or I don't think this is a good idea. And you had some facts and data behind it, or you might ask for more information. But bottom line is we became so much more aligned when we decided to go forward with it because you had all the information you needed to make it real. And we were confident that we were spending time that should be spent on something as opposed to let's throw this idea against the wall and, and see what happens. We, we definitely had a much more actionable plan. I couldn't agree more. I think that as we got into it too, we started figuring out that it had a lot more uses. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think we ended up doing the Colby for probably close to 60 or 70 of our 325 employees. Mm-hmm. And anytime that we put people on a team, we would go look at their Colby's and make sure we had a good mix of people on that team. Because right. just an example, if you put everybody with a quick start on that team, you'd probably end up with chaos. Right. And if you put everybody as a high fact finder and high follow through, they may never get started. Yep. But mixing the team up, understanding that <clears throat> was a great, a great approach. We even took it a step further too. We started doing uh, Colby's of the job. So if we had a job applicant or an open, That was really powerful. It really was. We, I wish we'd have found, found that tool a lot earlier because yeah. we could have avoided a few things that went on in one of our manufacturing areas. Mm-hmm. But it was a great tool. Um, we would fill out the, the job, mm-hmm. Colby, and then compare that to the candidates. So we'd have the candidates after they came in and interviewed. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think we moved it up. We actually did it before they came in. So we knew their Colby as they came in. Right. And if they did, if it was not a match early on, we, a lot of times we just didn't invite them in. Right. And uh, we really started finding the right candidates for the right jobs. I remember one instance where we were looking to hire a VP of sales and he, he seemed great. He had great references. Well, maybe he didn't. Let me get back to that. And <laughs> the, but we said, okay, we're going to use the Colby. And one of the things is we wanted a VP of sales who had a higher quick start. And I figure what the numbers, let's say we needed at least a six quick start. And he came back at a two and like, wow, this is weird. This doesn't jive with what we, we see. He's outgoing. And then Len thought back on some interactions and specifically in regard to references he didn't want to give us references until he was, we were ready to give him the job offer. And that was a definite validation of a, someone with a low quick start because he was, there, there was risk in his relationships with the people who he's giving, who are his references. And he didn't want to squander those. Whereas someone with a high quick start be like, yeah, go ahead talk to whoever. And, that really did help us understand that he was not the right person, that he would not take the risks that we really wanted someone to take in the VP sales role. I remember that one. I wish we would have had it when we hired our first vice president of sales too. Yes. <laughs> yes. That would, would have saved a lot of time. Time and money. Yep. For sure. For sure. The, and one of the ways that Colby does this is that, you create the Colby for the role and then they will score the candidate against that with a letter grade. And if you don't have at least a B or above, you just shouldn't hire that person. I remember having one of those conversations with the, with the uh, people, the strategic coach that we went through it. We found a guy that we, we really liked the candidate, Mm -hmm. but the Colby was not even close to a match to the, yeah. to the role. Uh, and we asked do people change and she says, well, they, they can adapt, but their natural tendencies aren't going to go there. So right. you're better off not trying to change that person, but moving on and finding the right candidate. Yep. 
So obviously we, we really like Colby and we're enthusiastic about it. We, we use it as a tool today, but we have no affiliation with them and it's just something we, we think is really valuable. So that's why we just spent so much time talking about it. I think the other thing that really helped accelerate the growth of rapid was putting in a formal operating system. And we used, we started out with, it was called the Rockefeller habits and along the way it became scaling up. It's a system developed by Vern Harnish and jump in here, Tom, and just talk about our journey and implementation and what you saw along the way. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that, that scaling up helped us with is just getting into a, the right routine and making sure that we had people aligned and working on the right things across the whole business. Mm-hmm. And when we started into it, it was, it was essentially, it was, you know, Jay Lynn and I who, who made kind of the day-to-day directional decisions and, and tried to, to get alignment as to where we wanted to go and get consensus. And then it was always difficult to pass that, cleanly down to the next levels of management to get everybody pulling in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the big things that the uh, scaling up or the alignment tools did for us was it just got us into a rhythm that was amazing to watch the results once, once it really started to click. Yeah. We started with a daily 1007 meeting mm-hmm. where we came in and just quickly hit on the high th- highlights of yesterday and the things are going to work on the next day. And in, in those meetings, you start figuring out that yeah, what people are working on isn't exactly what you thought they were working on. Mm-hmm. And we, we converted those into weekly staff meetings that talked about the things that we're working on, the progress we're making. We went to what we called monthly sprint meetings. Again, I mentioned it was three, three of us when we started. I think when we ended up selling the business, it, it was closer to 70 employees that were yes. in these monthly meetings talking about here's the well, things. Roughly 25% on. of the workforce. Yeah. And it was just amazing to watch how they uh, embraced that. And there's a few people that just stepped up and became, I, I described superstars yeah. in using it and really drove their employees to it and, and, and helped them manage the day-to-day activities as well as the things that we needed to get done to keep the business growing and moving in the right direction. Yeah. And uh, I just, again, I, I was amazed at the progress that we made and the alignment that we got out of it and the enthusiasm that we got out of it in the, from the employees. And it wasn't, it was a big investment. It was our monthly sprint meetings. We, we just, we took people off site mm-hmm. for a full day mm-hmm. um, and went through, you know, kind of the two main business units, what they were working on and then had our senior management team stay for the afternoon to go through yet another, another round of the things that they were working on. Right. And the alignment, the alignment was amazing. I think it just it, everybody knew what everybody else was doing, and everybody just kind of, kind of had a chance to speak their mind, got their inputs, knew they were being heard, um, and once they locked in, they just went to work at getting things done. Right. I think that it also really develops accountability because it in the monthly goals, quarterly goals were very transparent and you had to present to your peers, whether you were successful or not. And if you were not talk about why you didn't make your goal and people knew that that was going to happen, that they, everyone had agreed their goals were important early on and they had that accountability and the peer pressure to accomplish those goals. And then those were the things that were important to the company, not urgent. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, and there was no place to hide. Right. So you, you were coming right. in, you're standing up in front of, you know, 25 or 30 of your peer group and talking mm-hmm. about the things that you were supposed to get done and what you got done. So it just it was a good forcing function to get people, yeah, uh, aligned and making sure they're completing the stuff that they committed to do. Yeah, I'll step back. The so I have the we'll go back to Coley. I have a two follow through. I didn't know that at the time 
when we started doing the Rockefeller Habits, but one of the things that I recognized that I really dislike structure. I don't want to do the same things every day, but for the company to grow, the company needed structure. The team members needed to have a framework within to operate. They couldn't just, as you said, the loon boss, I couldn't be giving them different things to do every day, every week. They would just be chaos. So, as much as I dislike structure, it was important to implement structure to make sure the company didn't blow up while we were growing. And one of the things I figured out along the way is that what it did was take the ideas that were in my head, and I'll say ideas as well as operating principles of the company out of my head and communicate them consistently to the team. So it went from J to team because I enabled, empowered, I don't really like that word, but really it does make sense here. The team was all on the same page. And part of the way that that was on the same page is we had that structure of meeting where everyone heard the same message at the same time. And I think back, and for instance, Tom, I may have told you something, and then I would go and tell Len the same thing, but I'd probably only tell him 80% of it, and I'd tell him 20% of something else, which I hadn't told you. And you do that enough times, and it's a very inconsistent message. So the Rockefeller Habits of Scaling Up gave us that communication tool through the structure of the meetings. And it really made me think too, as a job shop owner, they have a vision component. What was my vision for rapid? What was our core purpose? And what were our core values? What was our three-year plan? And I came up with those in isolation. Then I brought you and Len into the picture and we hashed through those. And it was really important for the three of us as the leaders of the company to make sure we were aligned on the vision because if we weren't, then we're all communicating something differently to the folks below us. And it was, I think it was fun to work through those. I don't know if you remember going through. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, I mean, I guess when I'm, when we got done with all those, you look back on it and you say, we really had things that were actionable and measurable in mm-hmm. our, in our system. You look, a lot of times you walk into a lobby of a company and they've got, you know, a whole paragraph of what their mission is. Mm-hmm. And my guess is if you walked inside the factory and asked people if they knew what the, right. the business mission was, they would have a tough time describing it. Yep. And we made ours very simple. We manufactured time. Yes. And that always made people stop and think about well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and out of that also came the core values that, that we lived every day. Mm-hmm. And the ones that we, you know, we had an employee of the month type of thing. And as much as I never liked those, it was fun to listen to why they were chosen by their peers mm-hmm. based on living up to one of our core values. And I just thought that really helped pull the core values out and made them operational. And it wasn't unusual for all of our monthly meetings to start with, hey, let's, let's go through what our five core values were. Well, in particular, we would have a meeting in the shop. Everyone was required to attend between the end of first shift, beginning of second shift. And I remember in particular, David Puglio, who ran our sheet metal operations, he was quite the cheerleader and we started off the meetings, he would have everybody shout out in unison, what's our, what's our core purpose? What's our BHAG, which is big, hairy, audacious goal? What are our core values? And it's one of the things that the Rockefeller Habits encourages you to do is make those permeate your organization. Use those throughout the day, throughout the company, and definitely we, we, when we gave recognition to someone, we tried to frame it within a core value if possible. 
and that, I remember that we had a shout outs at the company meetings. You remember that where, oh, yeah. and we would try to make, tie it to one of the core values, not just great job, Tom. Yeah. And those shout outs permeated the, you know, the start of our daily meetings and mm-hmm. the start of our monthly and weekly meetings. And mm-hmm. so, and, and when you went around the room, it was amazing to start hearing things that people were doing and why they're being recognized that we had no idea was even happening until you heard it coming out of that, right. that activity. I remember we hired an outside uh, uh, controller to come in and uh, I'd worked with Ray for years in the past. And uh, he came up to me after the first couple of days and said, you know, those, those shout outs are, they're just weird (laughs) because we're talking about positive things, but we always talk about negative things. He said, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. And within 30 days, he was the biggest advocate of it and really embraced it and, and saw a huge value in it. And again, learning the things about your employees that you never would have known had we not done that. And just a positive way of getting meetings started as well. Yeah. So I think that if you could maybe talk a little bit more about the specific structure of the meetings, we had an agenda, everybody knew what to expect. And it, again, it, it, it was that structure. It wasn't willy nilly that we went into the meeting, we spent an hour and then we're like, Oh, we should have talked about this, but maybe you could talk about some of that. Yeah. Just give you the example of the, of the monthly meetings. We always started with kind of the overall uh, business metrics from the prior month Mm -hmm. and talked about what the metrics were going to be for the, for the upcoming month. Um, And then we uh, allowed people to go around and do our, we did the shout out, obviously to start the meeting ahead of Mm -hmm. that. But then also had um, a time for every one of them to stand up. We gave them three to five minutes to talk about the things that you accomplished from your previous you know, three or previous month and mm-hmm. the, th- the three things that you said you were going to complete. And then at the uh, second part of the meeting was talking about next month's goals and objectives. Um, and then we always saved time at the end for open discussion and things that were on people's mind. And it was always, we'd, we'd give you people a finite amount of time, but we usually scheduled those toward the end of the day. So if people want to continue to talk, mm-hmm. we could talk. And, and we always did a little social thing at the end of it too. Now there's something else you couldn't do in a public company, but I, we, <laughs> you know, so let's, let's just touch upon that. The, one of our core values was enjoy the journey. And Matt Cerdillo, who was our marketing director mentioned this today that the golf league, a social event, but it was a great unifying tool for the, how many, how many rapid folks were in the golf league? And maybe you could share what, beyond the fact that you got to have some fun playing golf, what came out of it? Yeah, we did, uh, we did two different things. And and we had actually a competition where we would have sheet metal versus machining versus sales versus senior management. So everybody would put in a, you know, a, a, I think it was a four-person team. And we'd go out and, and pick an afternoon and go out and, and it was during work hours mm-hmm. and, and play the match. And at the end, you'd, you'd have the bragging rights on who got to right. have the, the trophy for the next, uh, the next year. And it, it, it just came out of that. Uh, people got to know each other. Mm-hmm. It got into some, you know, you just felt differently about people that you camaraderie that, that, that created and it, yeah. and it wasn't often out of the sheet metal machining parts. It was, it was operators and right. And people from the floor that participated in it, right. people that you would have not ever gotten the chance to be in a social, social mode with. So it's all those little things. And I think you mentioned it earlier today. It's when we started, when, when we were selling the business, we sat down and actually started just writing down the things that we did to recognize and celebrate. Mm-hmm. And I think we had, close to a hundred items that, that we came up with, the things we did, not every, every uh, year, but things we had done along the way to just to celebrate yes. and enjoy the journey. So, and, and you miss those when, yeah. when they're gone. So share with the folks listening. One of them was we had say five year anniversary celebrations and we would take an afternoon off and at sheet metal, we actually had the 15th year celebration 
And it was a big party and both Tom and I were in the dunk tank. We <laughs> rented a dunk tank and we, everybody got three tickets, I think it was, and they got to throw softballs and we went into the water. But the, the, we had some of the, the team members got together and who were uh, musicians and they had a band going and they were playing music and barbecue and cornhole and all that stuff. Yeah, that's when I learned that uh, David Pulio actually played the guitar. Yeah. If you met David Pulio in the hallway, you'd think he's the, the most straightest uh, guy that you would ever, ever meet in terms mm -hmm. of you know, what he would do. But he came to this uh, anniversary, he put his earrings back in. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew he wore earrings. <laughs> and then actually played the guitar in the, in the band and was singing and you you have never, ever expected that. So yeah, getting yeah. to know people outside of work is a key part of, uh, it just builds the trust and the relationships that, that you build on later as well. Yeah. So if you're a job shop owner listening, if you like to golf, grab some folks in the shop, take an afternoon off and go golfing. Celebrate. For us, it, it, as you said, Tom, half your waking hours are spent at work. And I remember beyond these big celebrations, it was if someone did something on the floor, and, and this was specifically if you were a press break operator and someone uh, figured out a way to save some time or money, people were celebrated on the floor by, the, by their peers and management may never have known. It was something that we really tried to make it fun place to work and celebrations are a big part of that. Yeah. It was a fun place to work. There's no question about that. Yeah. So one other thing that I think we recognized and we implemented that was very important was training. So maybe you could jump in on that. Yeah, this is one that, uh, when, when you look back on it, I think it was one of the reasons that we were positioned to grow when the opportunity to grow presented itself. Um, so in most uh, companies, you, uh, most especially small privately held companies, uh, the training kind of happens ad hoc. Uh, right. It's not, not well-structured, not well-organized. And you typically, you pick, you know, oh, he's a really, really good engineer, so he must make him ahead of the engineers and he'll be a great engineering manager. And a lot of times it just, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got connected with an outside third party uh, that we, in the end, put probably close to that 70 people through training at various degrees. We kind of broke it up by grouping. Mm -hmm. um, we had our executive team that uh, Jay Lynn and I met and did some training individually. Then we had our kind of our management team that met on a monthly basis and really worked on skills training mm -hmm. and things that you do and how to, how to handle certain situations. Then we dropped it down another level and did the, you know, all of our group leaders on the floor. Again, the same thing. Great, you know, great press break operator doesn't necessarily make a great group leader for the press break business side. I, so I think that the, that group is probably the most critical. If you're going to spend any training dollars, that is the group that needs it the most. And my aha moment was when we promoted folks to be managers, say you were a great press break operator and we needed something to manage the press break department. They weren't always the best managers and we'd get frustrated and but then you step back, you say, well, we put them in a role. They were an individual contributor. Now they're a manager. We didn't give them any tools on how to manage. So how are they going to manage? They're going to look back on how they were managed over their career and how other managers at Rapid had managed them. And that probably isn't the way that we would want them to manage the po folks who are now reporting to them. So unless we gave them training instruction on how to be a manager, we, we were just setting them up for failure. 
So that was definitely a big aha moment. And I remember we had a bunch of individual contributors who would become group leaders. And I don't know if you remember this story, but the first session, the the fellow who did the training, by the way, was fantastic. He was had a training plan all set up. So first session with all these folks and they're sitting down, there's probably about 10 of them. And he says, all right, before we get going, does anybody have any questions, anything uh, we want to get, get out in the open before we get started? And one of the folks raises their hand and he says, yeah. He goes, what if you have an employee who all you want to do is punch him in the face? <laughs> I remember this. You remember that? Yep. And he stopped and he's, he totally taken by surprise, but a good trainer. And he said, well, first of all, don't punch him in the face. <laughs> and then he asked how many other people feel like this? And every hand at the table went up and he scrapped his plan for the day. And they spent essentially the rest of the hour talking about how to deal with employees who you want to punch in the face. Yep. And I never would have thought that that's something that, that that's, that's how they, that's how they, uh, and of course I knew they wouldn't punch them in the face, but how they were looking at the folks who were reporting to them. So it's, it's that basic. You need to give them the tools for conflict resolution amongst other things. Yeah. It's a big commit. I mean, we just out of pocket costs to the, to the trainees. I think the, yeah, the, 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 on an annual basis, we spent close to a, quarter of a million dollars on the training. I think side. we budgeted about 1% of sales. Yeah. And yeah. then, and that doesn't even include all the time that these employees are away from their job. Uh, getting trained on skills that we knew they would need in the future, or we knew that there were going to be openings that these people could fill in the future. And I think the gratifying thing is when you look back now and you see the people that we trained and how they stepped up into bigger roles, took them on and helped us succeed. Yeah, right. You look back and say, wow, the well, investment was small compared to the return we got on it. And the, the culture at Rapid was different than most manufacturing operations. So you had to, it took about a year to get the Rapid culture flowing through your blood. And that would, that was a problem for scaling the business. So it was, for us to grow, we had to bring people into management roles and keep promoting them uh, from within because we just didn't have the time for folks to get up to speed and be contributors. So it was from a dollar perspective, like you said, it, uh, it was a big number, but if we hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have been able to grow or we would have had a lot more problems growing. Yeah, no question. So again, it's, it's in, in promoting people that you know and trust is always easier than to try to go outside and find that person who you don't know, haven't worked with on a day-to-day -day basis, haven't been to battle with, right. with them and not knowing how they're going to react under different pressures. Just such a... And I think it also for both of us was really gratifying to be able to create opportunities for folks. I, I know there are a lot of people who started out in individual contributor roles, definitely two or three, at least from the shipping department at Rapid Sheet mm -hmm. Metal, who grew into significant roles at the company. And to be able to give them the opportunity to reach their potential, it, not only the opportunity through the growth, but to give them the tools so they could take advantage of that as well. It was really, for me, one of the biggest pleasures of having the company was to see people reach that potential. Yeah. Again, very gratifying. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. We've covered a lot of ground today, Tom, and I really appreciate you coming in. It's been a lot of fun. Brings yeah. back so many great memories of our time at Rapid. So, 
Thanks for sharing the stories with our audience. And I just want to say beyond that, I really appreciate all you did for me as a mentor because I was pretty green rapid, ended up being the largest company I ever worked for. So I was learning along the way and you, you helped put the guardrails in place for me as well. So thanks for everything you did there for, for rapid and for myself. Yeah. And thanks for hiring me and showing me what, showing me what working for a small privately held business is all about. It's a blast. So I can't thank you enough. And just so the audience knows is after we are done here, we are having a rapid alumni Christmas party because we really did enjoy the folks we worked with and we miss not being around them. So this is an opportunity we're recording in December of 2019 opportunity for us to enjoy the journey and recount some of those memories we had together. Yeah. It'll be fun. Anything else you'd like to add? No, just looking for uh, seeing some old faces that we haven't seen for a while. Great. Well, thanks again for being on and for the listener, thanks for taking the time to out of your day to listen to us talk about operations and some of the experiences we had at Rapid. Any feedback or comments would be welcome. If you like the show, please spread the word, leave us a five-star review and follow us on LinkedIn. Until next time, keep the spindles turning.